Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 434. I am your host. Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming into this show. First up is, we have an interview with Ryan Callow. Ryan is an assistant professor of law, and we're talking about robot law, and do we need to change our laws? All these new robots coming in, Google's driverless cars, everything like that, and... Do we not now need to start thinking about changing the laws? Are, are the laws adequate enough? You know, that that's kind of set in place now. It's all strange times ahead. Then it is the main fiction, and it is Jump Cut by Lauren C. Tefu. So that's all to look forward to in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, there's always a before that, and this is quite a big before that. <laughs> As I do I don't know, most of them probably be aware there's been a little bit of kind of, you know, a little bit of things going on in the internet of late. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we kind of, you know, we, we put our kind of neck out, Starship over and says, you know, we, 10 years, we're up for, you know, if, you, if you're thinking about it, we're up for a Hugo Award. And, hey, do you know what I mean? It would have been lovely if kind of Starship over, and as you can tell from that, it would have been, it would have been lovely. We weren't nominated. But... There's a whole kind of slew of kind of horribleness going on again with the Hugos. And it's it's just a strange time, do you know what I mean? So, you know, I kind of, I had a feeling Starship Sova wasn't kind of nominated because, you know, you get, you get a sly email. Shh, don't tell him. You get a sly email about two weeks beforehand. And I was thinking, you know, done it, you know, been there a few times. So I, I thought, oh, the, 
you know, if if they're going to be, it would be around this time, you know, two weeks before, you would get an email saying, you know, don't tell anybody, congratulations, and just to make sure they get the names right on, you know, once the kind of whoever it is doing the, the Hugos that year. So we didn't get this thing, you know, I was kind of, all oh, right, right. So on the the day of the announcements, you know, I'd actually forgotten about it, you know what I mean? But there was a good friend, Nick, on Twitter, you know, it said, oh, you know, Tony, you know, Starship's over, Tales to Terrify, congratulations on your Hugo nomination. And I was like, I missed that one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Eagle eye, I forgot all about it, missed it. So I went over to the kind of the list and checked it out, and... Starship's over wasn't on, but Tales to Terrify was on. Do you know what I mean? I was like, oh, wow. You know what I mean? The kind of sister, you know, the darker, the creepier side of the District of Wonders. Tales to Terrify has been nominated. And it was just like the instant I kind of seen that, I went, you know, I just thought of Larry and I went, go on, Larry. Do you know what I mean? What a f- shot in the arm forward to get, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying I'm kind of, single mind focus starship so far but you know what i mean i kind of put my energies in there and i let the other two you know shows run their course with you know the great people over there and but when i seen that i was kind of oh that's that's actually amazing do you know what i mean it's like it's it's two shows that i've kind of you know sort of produced as as being nominated and this thing you know that i couldn't get out of my head i was like if i could have a drink with larry you know what i mean sit down again and you know just chat with him you know, and I, I said, you know, I kind of, I had a few words to myself, you know, talking to Larry, and I was chuffed a bit, you know what I mean? I was absolutely chuffed a bit, the tales to terrify, you know, had been nominated. Two hours later, I, so, I realised, so I forget who told us there now, that tales to terrify had been put on the kind of, this rabid puppies slate, this Vox Day, the Lots of names I could go into calling them. Do you know what I mean? He'd use the slate to kind of put in Tales to Terrify. And what, you know what I mean? Just, I'm not going to kind of go into the whole, because it's been going on for, you know, two years there now. But Tales to Terrify, I think, if I'm right in thinking, I think everyone in our category has been on this kind of Vox Day or, you know, the Rabbit Puppies or the Puppies slate. It wasn't, you know, we weren't just singled out. And... It's like, oh, my instant reaction is, oh, you know what I mean? I, I was gutted, to be quite honest. You know, it just, just punched us in the gut to be associated with that kind, of, that, that kind of mentality, that kind of person. You know what I mean? I just, it was horrible. Do you know what I mean? And straight away, you know, I'm so lucky as well. I wear so lucky that the district of wonders, every, you know, just kind of rallies around, and I've got great friends here, and we just had a conflab. You know what I mean? Just like, what do we do? You know, we didn't have to be put on this. And, you know, last year everyone was kind of pulling out. And it was just a kind of shambles and a mess. So we kind of had a look around. And the the kind of big instigators, you know, or kind of the, the, our side is big hitters. You know, the likes of Scalzi, George R. Martin. And there was um, Brandon Sanderson as well. Wrote some lovely blogs about it saying, don't pull out. Do you know what I mean? That's the last thing we should do now. You know what I mean? Let let the the votes kind of stay. Let them be there and let everyone, you know what I mean? The fairness will kind of trickle through and hopefully, you know, the, the right winners will win. Just let people vote on it. If we kind of pull out and and step away, it's it's given in to this kind of nonsense Egypt. Do you know what I mean? That kind of wants to just destroy, you know, wants his particular, well, it was last year, his particular publishing, publishing house 
wanted the vote, you know what I mean, wanted kind of had all the nominations and all that. But this time he's done it kind of slyly and he's he's there's Stephen King on there, there's Neil Gaiman's been in there with the, there's a whole kind of popular, you know, big authors. They've like cleverly put them on their slate. So, you know, but if you go over to read George R. Martin's blog and Scalzi's blog, that's in. You know, we, we cannot, you know, hopefully these things will change when the Hugos get there's a meeting coming on and they're going to kind of change it so they stop this kind of voting. So we kind of we had a conflab and we had a kind of look at what was going on, took advice really from, you know, the people that kind of mean a lot to us, you know what I mean? The kind of people that the writers we look up to, you know. We didn't want to kind of just look as if we were, or Tales to Terrify was just there for the glory. Do you know what I mean? Oh, we'll kind of, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll try and get a... It wasn't that... A case at all, and then if anyone disagrees with you know with our kind of stand, and we put out a, a nice press statement. If anyone's seen it, go over to the Tales to Terrify website. We've now put up like a, a blog section, there's like a top of the page. We put the link there so you can read our thoughts and our you know the reasons why we've decided to let you know the kind of Hugo nominations stand for Tales to Terrify. Again, if, if that's not, that doesn't sit comfortable with you, do you know what I mean? Come over, you know, share your views. You drop me an email, starshipsover at gmail.com. Drop Stephen over there. Anyone, you know, tales to terrify. This is the kind of the stance we've made. And it might change, you know, if everyone starts pulling out and, you know, want to kind of disassociate themselves with the Hugos and the Witch Vox Day. I would understand that at the moment, you know, like say, guidance from the, 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 the kind of big hitters is leave it in there and you know let people decide you know what I mean it's when the kind of vote as pack comes out that's when you know it's it's your turn to kind of decide does Tales to Terrify justify or do you go with the kind of no award no vote policy from from last year and I'm not too sure how and you'll probably never know how this Vox Day you know singled out Tales to Terrify or the other ones. Do you know what I mean? They're all on his slate. I think more, if I'm right in thinking, because I just had a look and then I traced back, I'm sure all the others are, are, are YouTube shows, you know? So I'm not sure what, you know how Tales to Terrify got in there, how it's it all came about. I'm sure we're the only one like that, you know, the audio literature side of things. Why did Tales to Terrify? All I can think of is, at this moment, you know, Tears to Terrify is in the news, you know, like the kind of running the Bram Stoker Award stories. Maybe that kind of highlighted somebody somewhere and thought, right, we'll, we'll use that one. Yeah, that one there, that one there, and that's how it is, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm lost, really, how, you know, it would be lovely to think Tears to Terrify, you know, that's the, the deepest feelings. It would be lovely to think we got there on our own, but the truth is, Vox Day with this slate of his handpicked sites and you know media outlets he he's kind of done it so at this moment our stance is we're going to just let the let tears to terrify be there you know we're, we're kind of in a way caught between a, a rock and a hard place do you know what i mean you, you, you pull out and everyone's oh, why did you pull out you've just let them win you know you've let them win we stay in you know actually we've stayed in and it's all been positive you know the reaction i sent out a big email with this statement in and it's all been positive the you know i've not had one you know anything 
come back saying, you know, you're doing the wrong thing, pull out, you know, it's disgraceful what you're doing. So we didn't ask to, you know, we didn't ask to be in, but we're going to ask, you know, let people decide for themselves is, you know, when, when the voters pack comes out, you can have a listen to what Tales to Terrify is, you know, can I vote for them or vote for whoever, you know, that's how we go in from this, you know, this day forward. It could change, you know, if it, if this it all kind of blows up again, we'll just kind, you know, because the, we are, you know, what I mean, it's just like that's the the annoying thing. We strive for being, you know, like bringing everyone into the fold. You know, it doesn't matter. Do you know what I mean? It's not about any. It's just about the story. It's not about the person, the you know, their gender, their color, creed. It's about science fiction. It's about horror. You know, the very fundamental, you know, how can it not get past? How can people not get past that? Going on a rant. Sorry. (laughs) So, anyways, that's, you know what I mean? Like you say, that's where we are at this moment. And that's where we're sticking to. If it, it could change, but we're going to leave Tales to Terrify in there. Now, get off. Let's get away from that. Let's get back into the show. What the hell would you do if a robot car, a self-driving car, drove into you? You know what I mean? Who do you blame? Where where do you put your claim in? That's what I've been talking to with Ryan Calco. Great interview. Ryan, then, is it time, do you think, we, sh- we should start kind of thinking more about robot law? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this really is the next transformative technology of our time uh, after the Internet. Um, and as with the internet, if we don't think through what the right legal and policy infrastructure will be, we won't really be able to maximize the opportunities or minimize the harms. I mean, when you think about it, it is, everything is starting to kind of move a lot quicker than what we realize. And there's this story, and I'm not too familiar with it though, but a good, one of those Google cars, you know, they're driving by themselves, hitting another car. Have you got any information on that? Well, just what I read, and my understanding is that um, not long ago, just a few days ago, uh, Google was testing its driverless car. The car was in autonomous mode, um, and it tried to merge into into, uh, another lane, and it was hit by uh, a bus. Um, You know, minor scrap. No one was going very fast. But the issue that was so interesting to me was that apparently the, the car made an assumption about the behavior of the bus driver. Specifically, that seeing someone trying to merge into the lane, that the bus driver would slow down. Uh, just the way that you and I have a model of how people drive, it has a model too, and it made an assumption. In that case, the assumption proved to be wrong. And so that's why they had a little minor scrap. Um, and that's fascinating, right? It's fascinating to think of these machines having models about the world that might or might not be true. I'm just out of curiosity as well. I wonder if that's kind of really put the spanner in Google's, you know, car driving business or do you think it's kind of just the you learn from your lessons well i think i think that you i think you do i think you learn from uh doing uh they try to model a lot of this virtually uh so that they um so that they can avoid uh, being in situations like the one they found themselves in um and you know in other words but you know if, if if your models reflect assumptions too about the fact that drivers slow down when you're merging into their lane then they're going to be erroneous. I mean, you know, but, but you know, in general, um, I think if anything, uh, Google and many others are, are as hopeful about driverless cars as ever today. With the law then, I've, I, was, I was reading your, kind of, your article, 
Ryan. And we've got to really go back to the 1950s for the kind of first instances of a human driving a car, but actually was classed as a robot. Now, this is a really kind of a strange one. I wouldn't, it was a frying basket. I wonder if you can care to just give a little insight into that. Well, sure, sure. I mean, so Fry v. Baskin's a fascinating case that doesn't necessarily involve a, an actual robot, but more uh, the judge's idea of what a robot is. So in that case, um, there was a young man, and he had a, had a driver's license, and he was driving his father's car. And he went on a date with a young woman, and she did not have a driver's license and didn't know how to drive. But nevertheless, he permitted her to drive um, and uh, gave her some instructions on how to do so. When to depress the metal, you know, when, when, to, when to put her foot on the, um, on the pedal, uh, when to turn and so forth. But lo and behold, she wound up flipping the car. And her, his father sued her for negligence. And what the court said was, you know, actually, she wasn't really driving. Um, she was only this boy's robot. She was basically being operated like a robot by the, by the boy, and therefore the boy was driving. Um, and not, you know, not only is that you know, quite an interesting uh, idea, the idea that a person could be um, puppeted by another and therefore not be responsible, uh, but you know, it occurs to me that especially in the 1950s, it was probably somewhat gendered. I mean, can you imagine the reverse? If a, if a young man were driving a car and a young woman knew how to drive and he didn't, uh, whether the court would say that he was really her robot in the 1950s. Um, yeah, but that was an early case. But there are, you know, there are several. There are several early cases involving, you know, actual autopilot accidents. Uh, and these cases are not, you know, haven't really been widely discussed so far. Is, is history then ripe with these kind of almost robot-themed cases, is it? Well, I mean, so I, I'm a person who writes about robotics and the law, you know, professionally. And um, I, I felt that in order to move forward, we needed to look into the past. And so I and a team of researchers went and looked at literally every case in the United <laughs> States, in federal and state law, to, to even mention robots and analogs like robotics and automaton and Android and so forth. Um, and... Uh, while while in many cases the references in the courts were in passing, and in other cases the ref, you know the, the a robot was in the, technically in the case, but it could have been anything. It could have been a toaster. It, it didn't matter that it was a robot, right? Um, so, for example, maybe there was some plot of a movie involving killer robots that somebody copied, and it was a copyright violation. But that plot could have involved aliens or killer dogs, and it. It would, it would have come out similarly, right? Um, but what we were surprised to find, and I was surprised to find, was that there are literally dozens of these fascinating cases involving robots already in uh, our case law. You know, like in the United States, as in, as, um, in, in the UK, um, you know, we have this common law system, and we write down, you know, what happened and what the decision is. Um, and, and I found, you know, again, dozens of of interesting cases, and I wound up generating in all nine case studies to explore robot-related issues that have already come up. Oh, it's fascinating! It's fascinating when you kind of—it's—it's an aspect of it that you know of kind of life for me that I never even, you know even give a second glance about. But now, like you see, things are just happening very quick, and you think, God, these you know these laws have, have been there all, all along. You know. Well, let me. Yeah, well, let me give you a couple of examples of, of some of the more interesting cases um, to give you a sense, right? So one issue with robots is, is they're a technology, but they feel kind of like a 
like a person to us, right? I mean, they're, they're, you know, you've heard, of course, of the uncanny valley, which is this idea that um, we like anthropomorphic machines more and more until it gets too close to com- for comfort, and then suddenly we are re- re- repelled. Um, you know, we just we just treat these 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 robots differently, um, and so a contemporary example would be this recent ad by the um, uh, by an animal rights group that basically showed various robots, you, most of them from Boston Dynamic, which is now a Google-owned company, um, being like tested by being kicked and knocked down, and uh, and fighting each other, and all these different things robots were doing, and saying that they, these robots were being mistreated, and people should join the ASPCA in order to in order to um, uh, help these animals. Um, and it was meant to be humorous and to generate, um, uh, you know. Uh, membership for the ASPCA, but at the same time, it, it, it resonated precisely because we feel weird about about these technologies being abused. But if you look back at the cases, there are cases where where courts have struggled mightily with whether or not um, a robot was a person or an instrument. So, for example, I don't know if you have this where you are, but in the United States, there's this chain called Chuck E. Cheese, which is a kids. Do you have that there? No, no. Okay. So basically, it's a it's a kids uh, uh, a fun kids restaurant, and it has all kinds of games and toys. But one of the things it has is it has these animatronic uh, bands. There are these you know there's there's, this, there's these different robots that are playing instruments, and every once in a while they they play a song, or you can you know put in money and they'll play a song. Um, and uh, they have these throughout the Chuck E. Cheese restaurants. Well, at some point, a clever local regulator decided that they wanted to see if they could charge a tax on performance at Chuck E. Cheese restaurants. <laughs> because the idea is that um, if you're serving food along with the performance, it can be taxed specially. So a court had to decide whether or not these robots perform for purposes of tax law. And they went into great detail about what a robot is and what it means to perform. And they found ultimately that a robot couldn't perform because it lacks spontaneity. Right. Um, and there are many cases like this. Another one quickly I'll tell you is uh, at one point um, uh, uh, in the United States, when you used to import different kinds of toys, they had a different tariff schedule. That's still true today. The idea is that you pay more uh, or less depending on what kind of thing you're importing. And, and it turned out that dolls were at a lower tariff schedule. So if you're importing dolls in the United States, and, then, and this is in the 50s, uh, then you pay a little less. Well, a court had to decide whether or not a wind-up robot toy from Japan was a doll. And that turned on whether or not it represented something animate. Because under the tariff schedule, something a, a, a toy that represents something animate, like a child or a dog, is, uh, in fact, um, a doll. Uh, so, the, again, the court had to struggle with, like, you know, uh, what is a robot? What does it mean to be animate? And they would look to the dictionary for these definitions. And eventually the court decided that a robot does represent something animate because a robot is a mechanical man, right? Um, However, this toy wasn't a robot. It was a toy of a robot. (laughs) (laughs) So that, so that, so that in this case, in this case, it was not a doll because it didn't represent an animate. It just represented something that represents something animate. Right. Um, and there are just all these cases and I could give you more and more and more where, where courts have already struggled with this thing that we know we're going to be struggling with going forward. Ryan, you must when you're kind of digging in and then you find one of these gems, it must just make your day. <laughs> it, it made, I'm telling you, Tony, it made my day. 
days after days after days. I would find I found one case where I was trying to think about, you know, uh, if you're using a robot to manipulate a particular space, like if you're using a robot underwater or something or if you if you're doing surgery far away, um, are, can you be said to be there? Are you present where the robot is or where are you where you are operating the robot remotely? And I thought to myself, oh, you know, maybe this came up, maybe it didn't. I found a case in which a court debated whether or not you could burglarize a bank with a robot because that you were not on the scene. The idea would be that you'd enter into a bank with a robot and, and, and commit a crime. And because burglary in the United States requires you to be on the premises – whether or not that could constitute a burglary, right? And, and like, you know, I had a smile on my face about that case for two days. I mean, it was just, it was just fascinating. Well, right, are we seeing then, excuse me, are, are the courts, you know, do they understand robot law now, like, adequately enough, that, you know, in today's age? I don't think so at all. I, I think one takeaway from looking at all these cases is that, is that uh, it, it, you know, if – is that robot? Is that basically courts have a particular idea of what a robot is, and very specifically, they think of a robot as um, a human without discretion, essentially, or, or, or a, you know, a machine that appears to have agency but actually has no discretion whatsoever, um, a programmable machine. And you know, if that were ever true of robots, it's it's less and less true today. I mean, obviously, they're programmable in the sense that they run code. But increasingly, robots are able to engage in sophisticated decision-making. Um, they, they behave in ways that are uh, what I call emergent uh, after the work of Stephen Johnson, um, which is to say that they're sometimes useful, but they're surprising. They can't be anticipated in advance. Um, and so I think that if, the, if the, co- the robot cases of the future wind up involving this kind of uh, uh, apparent agency, this this um, emergent behavior, then actually courts are going to be very poorly uh, situated in order to decide those cases. Well, you, you actually mentioned one, and I hadn't heard about this kind of story, but it was something to do with like a, a twit, one of these Twitter bots, you know, out there in the ether of cyberspace. Is it? Did it threaten to kill someone or a, or a fashion show? What was that story? Well, there are great examples already um, with Twitter bots, right? And so Twitter bots are not embodied in the way that a, maybe a real robot is like in the world. But, you know, they're, they're, they're having conversations and they're, they're, they're um, participating in, in dialogue on, online. Um, and, and there have been Twitter bots that have done everything from uh, say something that was defamatory. At one point, um, Real Human Praise, which is the Twitter bot of the Colbert Report that, that, that existed um, for some time, uh, accused a Fox News anchor of uh, of being hungover because he had gotten drunk on communion wine, right? It's the kind it's the kind of thing that it's the kind of thing that if you were to say it about a person, uh, then uh, that would be defamatory. But but as a matter of fact, all it was doing was combining um, right. reviews from Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, and and uh, which is a, a movie review and TV review website, and and, and just kind of substituting Fox News anchor personalities in, in in there for what the reviewer was saying about a movie, and that's how it got this configuration. But another example that you alluded to was that there was a bot uh, that actually specifically threatened um, a fashion show in Amsterdam, and the police had to be called. And the police went over and located who operated the bot and, and, and questioned that person and found out who made the bot and questioned that person. And neither of them, neither the operator nor the creator of the bot, had any idea that this bot would behave this way. It was programmed to, 
you know, call different kinds of things and combine them together and generate certain kinds of speech. It was absolutely not made to threaten anybody, and they didn't think it would do that. Um, and so, uh, 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 and so, you know, in, in that in that particular instance, uh, we see an example of emergent behavior that uh, uh, that I think would flummox the court because it would look for intent, or at least it would look for foreseeability um, around the kind of harm, and that would be absent. I just I, it it kind of does boggle the mind then because where would the start to kind of pull that you know that thread out and try and make some sense of it if it's you know the people that designed it didn't expect it to do that the people that's operating it didn't expect it to do that and yet it's a way on its own doing it you know it's do we need new laws then Ryan? Well, you know, it, it's seldom in at least you know in my experience with the United States a law it's seldom that you really need like a entirely new law. Right. That you would that you have to like invent some doctrine um, that happens. I mean, for example, in one of the cases that I looked at, a court had to figure out whether or not you could possess a shipwreck merely by sending a, a, a robot sub to it and it, in a submarine. And it did it fashioned a new doctrine called telepossession, which became very important and, in fact, was used in the Titanic uh, shipwreck case for the law of salvage. Um you know, but usually what happens is that is that you draw from existing principles. Um, so, for example, negligence, which is the concept that you can be responsible for not acting like a reasonable person in a way that predictably causes harm. You know, negligence was around for a long time, but it wasn't important in American law until trains. Trains were really useful and they were killing lots of people, both passengers and employees, but also uh, causing fires and the like. And, and so in order to mediate that um, uh, cost and benefit, basically, the courts latched on to negligence, and today negligence is extraordinarily important. So for me, you know, concepts that already exist in the law will become more important. Uh, that's more likely than we'll need entirely new laws. Right, right. What about then drones? Because that seems to be always in the news at the moment. Are we kind of taken care of with the laws that stand now for people using drones and, you know, things like that? Well, drone law in the United States is immensely complicated because it's a mixture of regulatory law, like the, the Federal Aviation Administration and, and its regulations for air airspace, right? Um, property law in terms of, um, you know, how low can a drone fly before it trespasses on your on your property, uh, as well as privacy, um, and so uh, among other things. And so, you know, drones are very complicated. I will say that an interesting thing about that we've seen already in the United States in drones, and um, this didn't quite make it into the paper because it's so recent, but in a future version, maybe it would. Um, there was a guy who was, um, who was charged with shooting a drone down. My recollection is that he was in his backyard and he saw a drone from his neighbor that he believed was spying on his daughter sunbathing, and he took a shotgun and shot the drone down. Um, and he was, you know, brought into court for criminal mischief. Uh, and actually, the case was dismissed. And it was dismissed because the sense was that he was protecting his, his and his daughter's privacy against this robot. And I have to say that that is a really interesting result. Because ordinarily, while you can certainly call the police if someone's spying on you, you can sue them, you can, you can ask them to stop. You can't take the matter into your own hands and shoot it down. Can you imagine, for example, if you were to sh- if you were to take someone's camera away from them and smash it, 
or if you were to otherwise damage someone's property. It's just, it's just not okay. And yet here, a court was, was, was willing to dismiss it. Um, so there may be a sense in which, you know, uh, especially with respect to privacy, that drones finally make us realize how, how much we're giving up. And I have another paper that I don't think I sent you that's called The Drone as Privacy Catalyst, which argues, uh, and it was, this was years ago, argued that, that basically drones would um, be a likely source of, of privacy law. And as a matter of fact, you know, something like 24 U.S. states now have drone privacy laws. Right, right. Right, what can I say? Final question, sir. What happens then when, when the robots stop making their own rules and laws? <laughs> right. Well, you know, I, I, I know the nature of your, of your podcast, and I'm happy <laughs> to talk about this. Well, let, let me just say a couple of things. I'm, I'm more in the camp that we ha- that's going to that's gonna be a very, very long time before robots take that on that kind of agency wh- where if they ever do. You know, I don't think we're going to have conscious um, – uh, robots in the near future. Uh, but if we ever did have a robot uh, or an artificial intelligence that um, really did appear to have consciousness, that would, that would entirely break our legal, our legal models, at least you know, here in the United States and very likely in, in Europe and elsewhere, because the law assumes almost everywhere that people have limitations. They have specific things about them. And the way that I dramatize this in my work is to talk about the copy or vote paradox. What I mean is that both the ability to procreate and the ability to vote, suffrage, are thought of by our Supreme Court as being um, human rights. And if an artificial intelligence were to demand both of them, and the way that it procreated was by combining with other algorithms, and you didn't have to wait uh, nine months to have the kid and then 18 years for that kid to come of age, but rather you could immediately form another intelligence, then we would have to ask ourselves, which fundamental right would we give to this artificial intelligence? Would we give it the ability to procreate or would we give it the ability to vote? Because if we gave it both, it would swamp the democratic system. Um, so, you know, maybe there are ways we can address this. We could say um, um, you can only have one uh, a right to vote every every uh, uh, nineteen years, right? Um, but uh, but but that would fundamentally break our our system. So I think the day that the that the robots make their own rules, um, it's gonna is gonna be a, a strange day indeed. <laughs> it's early. Ryan. Honestly, it's been lovely having you on. Thank you so much. But just kind of enlighten with. Do you know what I mean? Like I say, it's a side of it that I never even you know thought about. And that the more and more we kind of advancing forward you know, laws have got to be in place and they've got to be in place correctly, you know. So thank you for sharing, you know, your kind of your findings. Oh, I'm very happy to. Thank you so much for your interest in my work. Take good care. You too. There you go. Big thank you to Ryan as well for that. Look, great interview, lovely chap, and threw up some great, you know, ideas and possibilities and these things worth considering, worth thinking about, you know, this, our future is kind of, it's... It's coming to work very, very quickly and things might have to change. You know what I mean? Certain laws might have to be changed, stepped up, should we say. So big thank you to Ryan. So the main fiction. Now as well, this is the, this is the first story on the show that Ralph Ambrose, our intern and slush reader, has helped produce for Starship Sova. So, you know, hopefully it's the first of many. Come on, let's just take a bow, Ralph. Well done, sir. 
It is Jump Cut by Lauren C. Tefu, and it was originally published in Unlikely Stories Journal of Unlikely Cryptography, issue 11. Lauren C. Tefu was born and raised on the East Coast. Now, is that the East Coast of England where I live? Good old adults, I, I suspect not. Educated in the South and employed in the Midwest. She now lives and dreams of in the Southwest. In the summer of 2012, she attended Towers Toolbox, a master class in writing, science fiction and fantasy. Her short fiction can be found in a number of speculative fiction magazines and anthologies. Once upon a time, she wanted to be a film critic. She decided to write a short story instead. To learn more, please visit laurencetafoo.com. Now, this story, we've got one of the old guys back on the mic there. This story is narrated by Mike Boris. Mike is, this is the official announcement, Mike is a freelance narrator based out of his basement in the lovely Midwest of former, of former America colonies. He prefers to read out loud for money, but he likes me enough to throw me a free bone every now and again. He's got a website, Mike Boris Audio, so pop over there. And like I say, Mike was, do you mean when, we, when Starship Summers first kicked off, we kind of, we dragged Mike up from the gutter with his narrations. We made him what he was today. <laughs> He's a lovely guy. Mike, thank you so much for doing this. And I like to say, I appreciate you helping out. Do you know what I mean? Really do. Thank you. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Jump Cut by Lauren C. Teffo. Machine oil and carnauba wax scent the air as I go through my cross-check. Drone cameras buzz and flash overhead. My hover bike, all gleaming chrome and hard-molded plastic, sits on blocks in the open-air stall as it charges. Beyond, the crowded arena rumbles, rippling into cheers as the other riders emerge from the locker room to check their gear one last time before the race. A qualifying round, one of those free-for-alls where all you care about is crossing the finish line before anyone else, by any means possible. I clench my fingers as another wave of cheers crashes around me. Sweat beads across my upper lip. No help for it. Time to cue up a vid chain. Closing my eyes, I use my neural implant to start the program. My heartbeat slows as the first clip slides past in the periphery of my vision. Lucio knows what settles my nerves. Mostly scenery pans, lush forests, wind-swept fields, mountains' majesty. The knot in my stomach is almost loosened completely when someone slaps my shoulder. Gritting my teeth, I blink back the images. I find Ari giving me a lopsided grin and nearly groan. What do you want? It's almost post time. I brush past him and grab my riding gloves and helmet from the bench along the low wall separating my stall from his. His grin deepens. Oh, come on, Jack! He wiggles his bushy eyebrows. Can't you get excited for a race just once in your life? My stomach lurches in protest, and I momentarily refocus on the rolling countryside scrolling along the edges of my vision. Deep breaths. You know how it is, I say through my teeth. Ari laughs and slaps my back again. What? The legendary Jack Deseronto nearly wets himself before each race? Knock it off. All right, all right. I'm just a bit amped. I snort. Ari's always amped. His gaze sharpens on me. Sorry, man, I didn't realize you're already boosting. I forgot Lucio builds in a longer lead-up for you. I attempt a shrug. Helps me race on my own terms, you know. 
I had a nasty spill a few months after going pro and never got over the gut-clenching terror in that moment. Ari shakes his head. All I know is you're the only guy on the hovercross circuit who lets the carnage on the track get to him. Can still beat you any day. He laughs and gives me a knowing look. I'll leave you to it then. No, it's okay. And it is. There's too much history between us for it not to be. We joined the tour four years ago, and we're still here, now racing for the same sponsor. Though neither one of us have meddled recently. Tonight will be different, though. I can feel it. Or maybe it's just the chain. I rub my face. So what did you want? He glances at the other stalls, then leans in. Got a new vid chain for today. Marek approved it a few hours ago. Really? Didn't think Lucio liked rush jobs. Doesn't matter if Marek's the one asking. He winks. Got a good feeling about this one. Kiego won't have a chance. Screams drown out my response as Kiego Atori enters the arena, waving to the cameras. Cocky, after taking gold the last few tournaments, Kiego scans the other stalls, stopping when he finds me and Ari. He gives me a differential nod, and I return it, despite Ari's elbow digging into my side. Kiego turns his attention to his bike, and Ari sighs. High and mighty bastard. He won't last. You'll see. Cool it. You're not doing my stomach any favors. Ari holds up his hands and backs away. All right, Grandpa. He hops the wall, separating his stall from mine. I give him a sharp nod. Good luck. Another grin. I like you, Jack, but I like you better when I'm higher up on the podium. I just shake my head and put on my gloves, then the helmet. The crowd noise is dampened, and with a blink I turn up the music that accompanies the chain. Thrash metal, like always. The only stuff loud and unpleasant enough to... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Drown everything else out. Moments later, the lights flash overhead. Time to line up. 
I kick my bike into gear. With a slight hum, it repulses from the blocks and hovers in the air. I have to fight the giddy, breathless feeling I always get and just focus on the bike beneath me. The crowd roars as hover bikes and riders exit the stalls. Ari gives me a quick backwards wave as I maneuver my bike behind his and follow the procession up to the starting gate. The referee stands before us, droning on about all the regulations we must comply with. No physical contact, no drifting outside course boundaries, no real-time mapping or course optimization applications running on our implants. Subdermal devices aren't prohibited in competition, since practically everyone has them these days, but we're limited in how they're used. No messing with neurotransmitter levels, for example. I guess it was only a matter of time before we figured out other ways to use the implants to enhance our performance. At the gate, the sequences my implant changed together move beyond just scenery dressing. Transitions are more abrupt, the content more intense, subconsciously preparing me for the race. As images flick past, with the lights from the course strobing around me, power throbs in my blood, commanding me to move, to blast my bike forward, to make something happen. The boost into chronostasis. I'm almost there. That magical moment where everything slows down, where I have all the time in the world to make split-second decisions. Only then will I be able to focus on the course, with all its tight turns and jumps, mentally determine the sections where I can open the throttle or short a curve, figuring out how much lift my hover bike will get off the moguls, which ones I can safely sail over and still maintain my speed. It's pretty obvious when the boosts don't work, but when they do, as long as you don't seize up, can still speak when it's over, that's a win, and I need one today. I'm barely able to keep the boost at bay. Ari, too, jittering on his bike beside me as the clock counts down. Time stops midway between one and go. And the dam breaks before my eyes. My bike twitches forward and the world lights up around me. We get out in front, take the first turn. Tanks rumbling, waves crashing, fireworks exploding. The images flash before my eyes and spur me on. The boost takes over, accompanied by a never-ending soundtrack of thumping bass, cymbals, and synthetic violins. My head aches with it. The home stretch beckons beyond the moguls. Ari shudders into view as we slingshot around a curve. It'll be just like old times, us battling it out for the finish line. We'll... No. The angle's all wrong as his hoverbike pushes off the last rise. Ari flubs the jump and his bike careens into me. That's when the screen goes dark. Fiend. A year ago, Ari followed me back to my apartment after a race where I missed the podium by a few tenths of a second. I wasn't really in the mood to talk, but Ari was his incorrigible self, all fired up and unwilling to take no for an answer. You know, the first time the Lumiere brothers showed their moving pictures to people, members of the audience panicked and tried to escape. They thought it was real, man. They literally thought a train was going to barrel into that theater and smash him flat. I shook my head. That's stupid. No, man, you don't get it. They believed what they were seeing. They believed it, and it terrified them. That's the power of moving pictures. That's the power we gotta harness if we're gonna go anywhere. He was right. The Asian kids on the tour had better reflexes, better acrobatics, 
Hell, they were fearless. There'd been a probe into seeing if countries like Japan, China, and Korea brainwashed them into these shredding monsters. Me, Ari, and a couple of guys from the old guard were trotted out, told to testify on what outcomes were possible in the sport. Didn't matter, though. The probe's findings were inconclusive. That, or enough money exchanged hands, it didn't matter anymore. All we knew is that we were getting our asses handed to us in every race. Fuck that. Ari paced across my apartment's living room, his fingers raking his curls. If they're not going to kick these little shits off the tour, then we got to figure out a way to stay on top. I let out a sigh. To race on my own terms. That's all I ever wanted. We earned our experience logging hours on the hovercross course, not on a chair hooked up to a mind-scrambling computer. The committee might look the other way, but we can't afford to. Maybe we can use their techniques to our advantage. What are you talking about? He pulled a well-worn book out of his back pocket and snapped the cover with the nail of his index finger. I've been doing some thinking. This French dude, Virilio, says moving pictures have a velocity all their own. What if we found a way to use that in competition? But no cams, Jack, and no cheating, I promise. This'll be completely legal. He paused and gave me a wink. Well, if it's only because it's so cutting edge. Ari was genius. He did the research, came across old propaganda films, studied up on the techniques of Eisenstein, Goebbels, and all the scientists that came after, researching visual stimuli's effect on the brain, watching the overs of Milliers through Gondry, read enough film theory to seduce every MFA co-ed in the country. By superimposing film sequences over our field of vision via the implants, not enough to hinder our sight, we could distract the active parts of our minds with the chains and let instinct and muscle memory do the rest during races. No more overthinking the jumps and turns. No more letting nerves get in the way. We'd find the zone faster than ever before and be able to stay in it as we rode the boost until the very end. That's when Marek became our sponsor and hooked us up with his montage technician, Lucio who stopped creating hallucinogenic and mood-altering chains for a discerning clientele and started splicing solely for us. When we started vid-boosting in competition, we were unstoppable. Me and Ari, one and two. Silver and gold every damn time. Then Kiego Atori started interrupting the flow. So we had to keep pushing the vid-chains further and further to stay on top of the field. Until the links broke, taking Ari with them. When the curtain rises, I nearly lose it, right there in the hospital. I have three bruised ribs and a gash running down low over my forehead like a goddamn pirate. But Ari, Ari is gone. Spinal cord severed on impact, gone in a fiery blaze of his hover trail. My implants filled with messages and news feeds that have captured the race in razor-sharp detail. When the shock wears off, when I can finally watch the race playback without vomiting, I wonder what the last image he saw was, whether it was beautiful enough to justify. The doctors finally discharge me once they're sure I'm not showing any more symptoms from my concussion. As I'm being wheeled through the corridors, I cue up a chain. With my digital blinders to the rest of the world firmly in place, the tension in my body leaks out like a deflated balloon. 
Marek's car is waiting for me in front of the hospital, along with a glimmering wall of paparazzi. One of the drone cams stuck in the revolving doors, flashing every time it hits the glass. But I'm riding the boost, my body disconnected from my mind as I lever myself out of the wheelchair, take a handful of steps to the passenger door held open by one of Marek's goons. I am untouchable today. It's the only way I can manage. Jackie boy, tell us how you're feeling. Mr. Darisanto, when are you cleared to ride again? What's going to be your game plan for your comeback? In the womb-like dark of Marek's car, I almost don't see the man himself until he clears his throat. Deseranto, how are you doing? My voice rasps out. You already know the answer to that. He inclines his head differentially. Careless of me, of course. Ari will be missed. He watches me, his lips pressed into a thin line. Where can we take you? The gym? The track? Your apartment? Yeah, my place. Merrick snaps his fingers and the car flows into traffic. I sink back into the seat. Thanks. My mind eddies as the roaring of a waterfall fills my ears and leaves frothy swirls in the periphery of my vision. A strange sense of peace steals through my veins. We should stage your next public appearance carefully after... Merrick's discordant voice claws me back to reality. I shake my head. I don't... Ari would have wanted. No, I need ti time... Merrick says smoothly. Of course, but you have to understand my position, Mr. Deseranto. If you aren't racing, you need to be earning your keep somehow. Lucia will set you up at the film archives so you can supply us with fresh footage. I consider saying no, but really, what else is there for someone like me? I'd probably stay holed up in my apartment, waiting until the media found a new story, another tragedy to distract the insatiable masses. It doesn't take long these days. I'll do it, although both of us already knew that. Excellent. Once you get over this episode, we can discuss your return to racing and... The limo stops at a light. I throw open the door and lurch out of the car into the welcoming arms of a vid chain. A week after my release from the hospital, a constipated-looking old man leads me to the elevator upon my arrival at the archives. The basement's where we keep all the original prints, leaving the upper floors for viewing and exhibit spaces, he tells me as the doors open. Jenny will get you started. Uh, thanks. A fresh-faced girl my age, or a year maybe two older, leaves her desk and holds out her hand. Jack Deseranto! When I saw your application, I could hardly believe it! That makes me wince. I don't know what strings Marek had to pull, or what papers had to be forged to get me a position here, but the vid chains need links. I know he has operatives installed at other places to curate sequences from movies, documentaries, B-roll from local news outlets, even commercials. And now he has me. I shrug. Are you saying I can't have other interests? Her brown eyes widen behind her rectangular-rimmed glasses. No, 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 not at all. Her hand falls to her side. I meant no offense. I was just surprised, is all. You came highly recommended. I'm glad to hear it. Yes, well, Jenny turns on a megawatt smile. She'd be attractive if she didn't hide herself in basements, wearing shapeless black clothes. Let me show you where you'll be working. 
past aisles and aisles of DVDs, film cans, and reels of magnetic tape, we come to a back wall with six booths along it. Number three, that's you. I stick my head inside. A projector, tape deck, monitors, mixing station, and a computer console. Enough gear, Lucio'd piss himself. A small grunt of approval escapes me, and Jenny beams. I look forward to working with you. Another smile, and she turns to go. Wait. One more thing. Yes? I don't want to be disturbed, or have my work here causing anyone trouble. If the paparazzi... Don't worry, Mr. Deseranto. You'll have all the peace and quiet you can stand after... The basement's a restricted area. Only employees can get down here. I relax slightly, and she takes that as an invitation to linger. She licks her lips. I'd love the chance to talk to you about your application essay. Oh, right. Just one more thing I owe to Ari. Your explication of the shot sequences in Eisenstein's strike were really quite... I, I mean, everyone always talks about Battleship Potemkin, but you can see the foundational work for his theories of montage in that earlier film. Eisenstein defined montage as the psychological effects that results from the collision of two or more shots. That's what Ari was after with the chains. A sustained emotional effect, fearlessness, euphoria, grim determination. Sometimes all of it at once, to heighten our perception during races as our brains try to resolve conflicting visual information. And when it works, nothing else in this world can compare. Jenny ducks her head when I don't respond. Listen to me go on. I'll let you get settled in. Ari would be laughing his ass off right about now. I'm sure of it. When I emerge from the maglev station, my body shuts down as strangers swarm around me. Some point and stare. Others shove past, stopping for no one. My busted mug's been everywhere in the weeks since the accident. Vid-boosting helps me forget that, but it can only do so much. Sweat slicks my forehead, my implants a pulsing weight on the back of my neck. But I resist the urge to cue up a chain. Instead, I shove my hands in my pockets and find the storage drive. Right. The whole reason I came here in the first place. I glance around and get my bearings. Lucio's is just a few blocks north. I dislodge myself from where I've become mired in pedestrians and start walking, shedding people as I enter the industrial district. I duck inside the salvage shop. The door chimes upset the disconnecteds like a flock of birds as they tear their gazes away from the display cases filled with models of used implants. Lucio looks up from behind the counter where he's dismantling an old touchscreen for parts. The dilated pupils behind the OptiZoom specs suggest he's vid-boosted recently. He hasn't, though. That's what makes Lucio so amazing. He can make the vid chains, but he's not beholden to them. Lucio sets down the dissected screen and slams his hand on the counter. The disconnecteds, mostly poor street kids, flinch back. You going to buy anything this time? The kid in the middle shakes his head. Then get out. We're closed for the rest of the day. But we can come back tomorrow, right? Lucio tries and fails to look tough. We'll see. The kids nudge each other. He's too much a softy, teasing them with 3D vids he puts together himself if he's not too busy splicing. Most of them will never be connected, but he tries to help them forget that. After Lucio locks the door and rolls down the blinds, he turns around and sees me watching. 
You better have something for me today. Marek's getting antsy. I do. Lucio snorts and leads me past metal aisles full of dusty components. I, I'm still new at this, you know, I call after him. All the more reason for you to do well, he says, without turning around. The back room is crammed full of screens, with a small computer terminal on a cart wedged into the corner. Lucio flops down into the desk chair while I take the only other seat, a rickety wooden stool. I hand over the storage drive. I try to avoid looking at the screens. With all the random images scrolling past, I feel like ants are crawling around my brain. I just need to get through the meeting, then... Your job at the archive holding up? Lucio asks as he loads up the sequences. So far, so good. So far, so good. Curated some great sequences for Marek's organization. Jenny caught me vid-boosting once, but I convinced her I was just having a vivid dream after falling asleep logging footage. She'd made sure to knock on the door to my booth since then. Which I guess is a good thing, but it's not like she caught me jerking off. Lucio plays the first sequence and pulls up the associated metadata on another monitor. He grunts. The contextual parameters look okay, but I'll have to check them all to be sure. Of course. Context's the hardest thing to get right. You can spot an amateur vid hack straight off based on how well they manage contextual transitions between sequences. That's not to say montage vids don't have their place. Lucio made good money creating increasingly incomprehensible shot combos to get his clients high. But it's risky, since it's essentially voluntary brainwashing. I heard about a guy mind-hacked on montage. Not pretty. I sigh and rub my face as Lucio brings up the next sequence. A general giving a speech to his troops before battle. The sound's muted, but my mouth moves along with the actor's words. Lucio pulls up another sequence, then another. I close my eyes, but I can feel the images pressing in, demanding to be looked at. Jack, hey, hey, you there? Huh? I... My eyes snap open. Yeah, I, I must have drifted off. He tut-tuts to himself. My friend, you need to take care of yourself. Vid chains aren't everything. No, but they make things... manageable. He doesn't disagree. You racing in the charity exhibition this weekend? I shake my head. I'm not officially retired. Not yet. But that doesn't mean I'm going to trot myself out no matter how many kids with incurable diseases it benefits. Ari's been gone for just over a month. Don't they know that? Lucio arches a brow, but says nothing as he pulls up a different sequence. I lean forward. A new one? He nods. This one's special. His hands skate over the keyboard, and the music starts. The accompanying soundtrack can make or break a vid chain. It provides subconscious signals for how your brain interprets the visual stimuli and walks you back to reality when the boost is over. Lucio is a great editor, but his musical ear is what sets him apart. Hear that? he asks. I concentrate on the music. The swells sound tinny, and it's not Lucio's speakers. It's lacking, I don't know, richness. Lucio beams. I stripped out the stereo layers. When you boost, it will add a bit of artificiality to the experience so you don't lose yourself completely. Usually, fidelity is the goal for vid boosters. It's why people like me go straight to the source for the sequences. Authenticity, provenance, 
These things matter so that somewhere in the back of your mind as you ride out the boost, you know that the light particles that comprise the moving images are minimal degrees of separation from the original, that you are almost there, too, experiencing everything firsthand. Even the music has to be pitch perfect. Lucio often performs the different instruments himself, layering them on top of each other with his mixer. But to deliberately add a layer of artificiality? A self-consciousness to the act of vid-boosting? I don't know. Try it. I shake my head, but Lucio grabs my wrist. I insist, Jack. If it doesn't work, no big deal. But if you're better able to control the boosts... I pull away from him. All right, all right. But I'm not paying for it. Of course not. This one's on the house. When I step out of Lucio's shop, Marek's car is waiting for me, along with a pair of drone cams. I wonder if Lucio told him I was here, then dismiss the thought. Lucio's always dealt straight with me. He was just as torn up over Ari as I was, in his way. The chauffeur stands at attention, like this is merely a social call, not a summons. I could decline, but I'd be dodging the cams all the way back to my place. Good to see you again, Mr. Derisanto, the chauffeur says as I slide into the back seat. But we both know there's nothing good about it, so I stay quiet. The car pulls into traffic, smoothly negotiating the crush of vehicles. The buildings thin out, and then smog rolls back a bit as we take the twisty roads into the hills. I wipe my palms on my pants leg. The car ride means only one thing. Marek wants me to race again. The archive job's not so bad. Thanks to Ari, I know enough jargon to get by. And there are enough hot girls like Jenny hiding behind glasses and shapeless black clothes to keep things interesting, the ones too afraid to be in the vids they're cataloging. It's not a forever thing. I know I'm expected to get back to racing once I get over this episode. I won't, but Marek doesn't know that yet. The car pulls up to his mansion in one of those walled rich people neighborhoods in the hills. Sentries with dogs patrol the yard, and security guards are stationed at each entrance. Big tough Vaughn at the front door gives me a curt nod as I'm admitted inside. Merrick's waiting for me in the study. Ah, Derasanto, good to see you. And you, sir. Lucio says you've been bringing in some great sequences. I shrug. It's just beginner's luck. Nonsense! You've always excelled when you've put your mind to it. His fingers drum against the desk. I wanted to see how you're doing. Trials for nationals are in a few months, and the charity circuit's already started up. I, I don't know if I'm as your sponsor. I'm concerned you aren't applying yourself. I'm not, and I'm not interested. Ari, ah, yes, Ari. His voice hangs in the air. I wonder if he's practiced that. An unfortunate accident, of course. But life moves on. You must, too. Surely you see that. He waits with that impenetrable gaze, and I find myself nodding just so his eyes will slide away. Good. The Oceanside Exhibition is on Saturday. Prepare yourself. He looks down at his desk. A dismissal. It's too soon. He crosses his arms and rests them on his desk, pretending to look thoughtful. I think we're rarely the best judge for our own limitations. 
Everyone needs a push now and then, a boost, if you will, to reach their potential. Isn't that why you and Ari came to me in the first place? At work the next day, Jenny knocks on the door to my booth. Jack, you gotta see this. She pulls me over to her terminal and hits playback. Mon chien Andalou, she whispers, as it starts up. A collaboration between Bouillonel and Salvador Dali. I think Ari may have mentioned it once, but I never... Shit! I know, right? She hits rewind and we're transfixed as an eyeball gets cut by a razor. Compelling even the second time through. It's not real, but damn, she says, admiration saturating her voice. As the rest of the vid plays, more incomprehensible images flash by. Pianos, ants, freaky-ass people. It reminds me of montage hacks I've seen. But I'm not seizing. Not yet. Hey, you okay? Jenny gives me a nudge with her shoulder. Huh? I blink as the credits roll. Yeah, I'm... You sure? You're breathing kind of funny. She's right. My heart's knocking into my lungs, sputtering for air like I've just burst to the surface after being underwater too long. I take a deep pull and slowly breathe out. I'm okay. But that was crazy. In the hands of one of Marek's professional editors, sequences culled from this film would be dangerous. The corners of her eyes crinkle when she smiles. Thought you'd like it. You seem to be drawn to the golden age of cinema. That's true enough. The older stuff tends to have longer shots and pans. Better for chaining, compared to the quick blink-and-you-miss-it transitions the digital era is known for. Doesn't mean digital sequences can't be used. It's just more labor-intensive to collect them and then chain them effectively. Jenny pushes her hair behind her ear. Hey, are you going to be in that tournament this weekend? The Oceanside Exhibition? I shake my head. No, no, I'm not racing. Oh, I thought I read somewhere you were participating. Marek, that bastard. I told him no, and he still thinks he can go over my head. I use my implant to scan the roster for the exhibition, and sure enough, I'm on it. A dozen posts come up, filled with speculation about what my appearance means. Hell no. I turn my attention back to Jenny. Well, I'm not. Her eyes drift to the scar on my forehead. Shit, not her, too. I get enough looks from the people on the street. There goes Jack Deseranto, the washed-up hovercross star. Will he regain glory or limp into exile? I really don't care either way, so long as it's on my terms. I get it, she says, smiling again. No, she really doesn't. I gotta go. I don't wait for her to answer. I skip out of the archives for the day and make my way to the maglevs. I flop down in a seat in the frontmost car. Green and blue scenery ticks past, like 16-millimeter footage as the train picks up speed. My hands bounce into fists every time the train stops to admit more passengers. It's only while we're moving that I can think. When I get to Lucio's, he waves me off. Not today, my friend. You don't look too good. I don't feel too good. My hands twitch at my side. If I turn my head too quickly, it's like a chain of individual stills stitched together instead of a continuous pan. Everything's breaking down. I've taken the maglev out to the end of the line and back, but it's not working. I need... No, you really don't. Trust me. I've been there.
I blink and try to follow Lucio's face. One minute he's behind the counter, the next his hand clasps my shoulder, and I jump. Vid-boosting's like looking into the sun. Too much, and you'll go blind, he tuts. How did that new chain work out, he asks, all businesslike once more. My nose wrinkles. I had trouble getting over the soundtrack, kept interfering with the boost. Keep trying. I wave my hands at my head, a helpless gesture. They feel disconnected from my body. But it's not doing anything. Lucio sucks in his cheeks. I can't give you another chain. Not if you're not racing. Merrick's orders. But the boost! I need it! You know why. A wave of pain passes over his face. He was Ari's friend, too. If you've exhausted all of your old chains, he steps closer and peers into my eyes, and clearly you have. There's nothing I can do. See, the mind can be tricked, but not for long. Too many reruns and the effect crashes. Game over. You can tweak the context, pushing the boundaries of flow, but even that will break down eventually. But... Marek said no more freebies, and that means you, my friend. A wave of blood-red darkness swamps my vision. You wouldn't even be here if it weren't for me and Ari, I say. It comes out more like a snarl. You were just a montage hack working piecemeal. Custom jobs for cineasts and movie freaks who love the nostalgia, or getting their brains scrambled, maybe both, along with more twisted fucks who could only get it up if there was enough visual stimuli to keep them going. Jack, I'm sorry. The chains. What you're doing isn't healthy. You need... I step toward him and he flinches back. What I need is a new one. Tremors rip through my hands and sweat dampens my palms. Ari wouldn't want this for you. I shudder, buffeted by an invisible breeze. Don't talk to me about him. My arm snaps out and connects with a display case. Glass shards dance everywhere. They tinkle onto the linoleum until the only sound is my ragged breathing. My eyes squeeze shut. I'm sorry. I didn't mean... It's all right, Jack. Lucio sighs, sounding more tired than I've ever heard him. Keep trying the last chain I gave you. Tinny sound and all. Because if that doesn't work, I won't be able to help you. Saturday morning, I'm torn out of bed by someone trying to break down the door to my apartment. I really don't need this, not with the headache threatening to implode my temples. But the knocking doesn't stop. I shuffle to the door, ready to destroy whoever it is. But it's Merrick, and he's brought Vaughn. Merrick smiles grimly. I see you slept in. Vaughn shoulders past me and starts rooting around in my closet for my racing gear. I turn back to Merrick. I already told you I'm not doing it. Don't be stupid. You do what I tell you. Vaughn escorts me to the car. My head still hurts, and Merrick keeps going on about respect and honor. He gives me a hard look. The house always wins. I can't tell if he's actually delivering his lines like some hard-boiled goon, or if I'm so far gone I can't distinguish between the boosts and reality anymore. I decide it doesn't matter when the car pulls up to the track bordering the ocean. Sweat drips down my spine. Bleachers already full are clustered at the bottom of the course. Let's not do this the hard way, Mr. Deseranto. Get out of the car like a good boy, Marek says. 
I spy Kiego Atori's fan bus in the parking lot. Digital projections of his face and a bunch of Japanese characters cavort along the vehicle's exterior. I clench my hands in my lap. Why can't you just leave me out of it? Because that wouldn't be very sporting. I don't understand. Marek chuckles, like stones clacking together in his chest. Then let me explain it, Mr. Deseranto. He waits until my eyes focus on him, then slides a black, leather-bound book across the upholstery. Do you know what this is? I shake my head and immediately regret it at the answering throb in my temples. This is the ledger where I keep track of the hovercross circuit. You and Ari made me a lot of money. At first. But then... He holds up his hands. Well, I had to diversify a bit. A sickening suspicion pushes past my brain fog. Kiego? You gave him chains, too? At Marek's nod, my eyes slam shut. What do you want me to say? You boys have been doing so well, I couldn't make money betting on you anymore. Kiego keeps things interesting, keeping the odds ever-changing. Did Ari know? Marek pauses, his reptilian gaze unreadable. I wanted you both focused on racing. The chauffeur opens the door, and I'm hit with the tang of the ocean. Fans' voices drown out the constant roil of the waves. It's funny. I've lived here for the last two years, and I can count on one hand the number of times I've been this close to the sea. You don't want to miss post-time, Mr. Desaranto, Marek says. Am I supposed to win or lose? I just need you to race. He gives me that look again. You need this, too. I snort, but I get out of the car. Fine, but I'm not doing any interviews afterwards. Marek just inclines his head, and the chauffeur closes the door, shuttering my view of the old man. At the gate, my implants isolate me from the noise of the crowd. I start up the chain with the crap sound Lucio gave me. I mop my face one last time and try not to look at the white caps colliding with the cliff face that hugs the course. My breathing slows to match the tempo of the music. Then it increases in intensity so slowly I almost don't notice it. The images change, too. Cuts are quicker, more violent, moving, and I need to move with them. The boost is coming along with the countdown. I can hear the crowd when Kiego's name and mine are announced, the spatter of water as the waves hit the rock below us. Lucio was right. I haven't lost myself. Not completely. I'm ready when the buzzer sounds, kicking off into the air, my body screaming with remembrance as the next vid sequence shudders to life. A lion taking down an antelope, horses dragging a thundering stagecoach past my eyes. Gunfire crackling through my ears as cowboys and Indians chase my bike through the first curve. Someone's drafting off me. Kiego. Cameras flash in the periphery of the track as we ricochet past. I lean into my bike, silently coaxing more speed out of it. I have the whole shot as the course straightens into the first set of jumps. I am an eagle soaring with the trout clutched between my talons. I am a missile detonating shock waves through the earth. A surfer shredding waves. The waves press in on me, licking the track below my bike. I can't. I made you? I can destroy you. Merrick. Flash. Ari smiles when we ready our bikes. Flash. Don't look into the sun, my friend. Flash. My stomach is somewhere up near my ears as I lead the pack into the steep downhill, right before the... 
Flash. Prepare yourself, Merrick says. Prepare. It's too fast. The music, too loud. The vid chain, it's... Am I being hacked? The bike shudders under my hands as I launch over the moguls. It shoots up into the air as it repulses the first jump, then slows as gravity takes hold and we fly towards the next one. At least two guys are battling it out behind me. Static and bizarre images blast past my eyes. It's too much. Did Kiego do this? No. Lucio knew. He knew, and... If this doesn't work, I won't be able to help you. Fuck! I take the next curve too hard, nearly skid into the bastard coming up behind me before I straighten out. Kiego's in front now. I tighten my grip on the handlebars. I am a speeding train. I am the woman tied to the tracks. I am the person who escapes the exploding building just in time. I... I'm supposed to lose. Lose it just like Ari did. Offsetting the odds in Marek's betting book. Symbols crash as I take the next jump. Kiego's in range. I can take him. I can... All that's left are the serpentine twists and turns to the finish line. And I'm gaining, but... Flash, I own you. No. I'm Jack DeSoranto, and I race on my own terms. I follow the thread of Lucio's music. I fight through the noise, the scrambled images, until it's just me and the course. I take the turns one at a time. I forget there's beauty in just being one with my bike. I cut under Kiego for the inside line and come out on top in the last curve. Voices are screaming, cameras flash, the finish line's up ahead, up ahead, and after that, the sea. The sea and shimmering oblivion. I'm not slowing down. All that momentum I built up in the descent, all that velocity, is what launches me over the crowd, over the wall of rock until there's nothing left for the hoverbike to push against. It falls away from me. And I'm... Oh, God. I remember Ari colliding with the racetrack head first with a gut-punching crunch. The crowd screams, but the boost is still going. I am the cop taking down a crook. I am the jockey clinging to the back of my horse as we clear the finish line. I... I won. And there's nothing Merrick can do about it. Not anymore. Wind slaps against my face. Lights spiral past my eyes. I've always wondered. And it's beautiful. There you go. Big thank you to Lauren. Lauren, thank you so much for that. That's just amazing story. Thank you. Indeed. And Michael, what can I say, lad? Michael, eh? Still got it, lad, eh? You haven't lost it. <laughs> Lovely to have you on, sir. Thank you, Mike. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, it's been a bit of a strange week for the District of Wonders, you know. We kinda we've 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 reached out to certain parts of the, the web that we didn't want to get to, to be quite honest. Filthy places. We we weren't too keen. But you know, we've it's 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 out there now. Let let me know what you think. That would be nice. You know, come over and read that statement we put out for Tears to Terrify. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story Sofa. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.